What's going on, food eaters? Hope you're faring well during Chapter 2 of the COVID pandemic. Welcome back to the Food Labels Revealed podcast. I'm your host, Mel Weinstein, your humble, self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 65. For today's show, you'll be seeing a return of the news format. Every so often, I report on significant online news stories from the world of processed foods. All the news items were previously posted on the FLR Facebook page, which can be found under the name Food Labels Revealed Podcast. As usual, I'm not just going to read the stories to you, but I'll mostly summarize and provide commentary. These stories often don't get covered by major news outlets or they wind up on the back pages and get overlooked. However, sometimes the articles provide interesting and useful information which you might want to tuck away for future access. This program is entitled On Ratings, Livers, Fat Genes, and Sausages. Alright, let's open the FLR newspaper. The first story from Yahoo Life, published in June, is entitled The World's Largest Food Company Admits 28% of Its Products Aren't Healthy. What company might that be? Can you guess? Probably not, since this company often flies under the radar. Drum roll, please. The answer is Nestle. Most people might think that Nestle is just a chocolate manufacturer, but it's so much more. In 2016, Forbes ranked it as the 33rd largest public company in the world, and it's the largest food company by revenue. It deals in baby food, medical food, bottled water, breakfast cereals, coffee, tea, dairy products, frozen food, snacks, supplements, and pet food. Besides the well-established Nestle brand, you'll likely recognize the following subsidiary brands, which sail under the Nestle flagship. Nescafe, Nesquik, Gerber, Hot Pockets, Lean Cuisine, Carnation, Dryer's Ice Cream, Kit Kat, Yorkies, Smarties, Stauffer's, Jenny Craig, and Sweet Earth. In a self-evaluation of its products, Nestle admitted in internal documents that 28%, over one-fourth of its food and drinks, qualify as unhealthy. From the article, quote, The presentation says that only 37% of Nestle's products score above the recognized definition of health of 3.5 on Australia's five-star health rating system. Several products also received an E-score, which is the worst score that can be given, on another rating system called Nutriscore, end quote. 
Let's hit the pause button for a few minutes to talk about the food rating systems mentioned here, particularly since the United States does not have any health ratings for commercial foods and beverages. The Australian-New Zealand rating system for packaged foods established in 2014 to fight growing rates of obesity uses a five-star score system based on a nutritional profile label that includes calories, saturated fat, sodium, and sugar. A precise mathematical calculation called the Health Star Rating Calculator is used to generate a score based on 100 grams or 100 milliliter portions of a product, which is then assigned a star rating. Both beneficial and detrimental food components are used to generate the score. For example, the more fruits, nuts, vegetables, and lentils are used as ingredients, the lower the score and the higher the number of stars. The higher the amounts of sugar, sodium, saturated fat, and calories, the higher the score and the lower the number of stars. The star ratings increment by half stars. A product labeled with a half star would be a warning to consumers that it was not healthy, while a product with five stars would be highly recommended. At the Health Star Reading website, the Australian government provides a spreadsheet for calculating ratings on individual foods or beverages. If you're interested in checking out the details, see the show notes. The star ratings are prominently displayed on the front of packages as a series of stars and also include some nutritional data. The food and beverage manufacturers are the ones responsible for calculating and displaying the ratings on their products. The other rating system, called Nutriscore, was created by a French public health agency. It also appears as a rating on packaged foods. A code consisting of five letters from A to E, each with its own color, is used to designate high-nutrient products versus low-nutrient products. This system also takes into account calories, sugars, saturated fats, and salt, as well as fiber and protein. Also, health-positive ingredients such as fruits, vegetables, nuts, and selected oils like olive oil are factored in. The highest rating is A, and the lowest is E. Other European countries, for example Belgium, Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands are adopting the rating system. Back to the article. This is from the Nestle Company. Quote, We have made significant improvements to our products, but our portfolio still underperforms against external definitions of health in a landscape where regulatory pressure and consumer demands are skyrocketing. End quote. In 2019, the company announced that it planned to label all of its products sold in Europe with a Nutri-Score. I don't know if that has panned out. Notice that Nestle did not mention labeling products sold in the United States. We're certainly not a country known for healthy eating. Nestle has stated that they have reduced sodium and sugar contents by about 15% in the last seven years and are working to make their products healthier. That's a good thing. A last quote. 
In the past, Nestle has dismissed the idea that the processed foods it produces are unhealthy. So this new admission from the company is a rare about-face for this large food manufacturer. The second article deals with kids' health and a topic often addressed on this podcast, sugar. The story was posted online in April in Pharmacy Times and is entitled, Added Sugars May Contribute to Liver Disease in Children. It's based on a study published in the Pediatric Obesity Journal. Yes, uh, this journal actually exists. And concerns non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a growing concern in both adults and children. Considering that you don't hear about this disease much, it's surprising how common it is. First observed back in 1983, now about 25% I said 25% of the world's population has it. It was estimated in 2017 that 75 to 100 million Americans have it. More specifically, over 90% of obese people and 60% of diabetics have it. Sadly, it affects 1 in 10 children in the United States, and that's a huge number. The mean age of diagnosis is 10, and more boys get it than girls. Unfortunately, the disease advances more quickly in children than in adults. As the name sounds, the disease is characterized by a buildup of fat in the liver, which enlarges it. Scar tissue can develop, injuring the liver, Scar tissue makes the liver hard, which affects its function. That's called cirrhosis. In some cases, a secondary disease called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis can develop, which could lead to liver cancer, liver failure, and cardiovascular disease. Non-alcoholic liver disease is the second leading reason for liver transplants in the United States, and Europe. Usually there are no telltale signs for someone suffering with this disease, so it can be difficult to diagnose. What causes the disease? All the factors associated with metabolic syndrome, that is abdominal obesity, or you can just call that belly fat, high blood pressure, high blood triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, old age, and a diet rich in fructose. Think of the high fructose corn syrup common in processed foods. Other contributing factors include hormonal disorders, hypothyroidism, and sleep disruption. Non-drug treatments generally involve losing weight and getting more exercise. All right, back to the article. The study in question poses the hypothesis that an excessive amount of sugar intake in childhood contributes to liver disease in children, and thereby restricting sugar intake, particularly fructose, may reduce the severity of the disease. Also, researchers suspect that children who are obese with abnormal liver enzymes are the most likely candidates for liver disease. 
from the article, quote, By getting a better handle on diagnosis and disease severity, we will have a more individualized approach to management where some kids will respond well to diet and exercise, while others may need a more aggressive intervention, end quote. Additionally, the ability to identify genomic markers will help to monitor the health of the liver in these kids. For the time being, the researchers suspect that just by reducing the global consumption of added sugars and processed foods would reduce the risk of liver disease in children. Additional research is required to evaluate the short and long-term effects of consumption of high amounts of fructose as it relates to the increasing cases of liver disease worldwide. The third news item comes from a publication called The Beat. The story is entitled, Not Losing Weight May Be Genetic and was released online in April. It helps to explain the mystery around why some people can lose weight easily while others have great difficulty. Turns out there is a fat gene, a variant of chromosome 16, that may cause some people to burn calories slowly. The now famous line, your genes load the gun, but your lifestyle pulls the trigger, helps explain how a person may minimize the effects of the fat gene. The cardiologist Dr. Joel Kahn discovered that he has the gene variant that makes it easier to put on weight and harder to take it off. Dr. Kahn credits a healthy plant-based diet with keeping his weight under control. The diet is heavy in vegetables and light on fat and sugar. He has maintained this diet for 40 years. According to Dr. Kahn, the fat gene, a variant of chromosome 16, is actually called the FTO gene. In a study of about 39,000 Europeans where researchers looked for variants of FTO, carriers of one copy of the gene from a single parent weighed on average 2.6 pounds more than people with no copies. Carriers of two copies of the gene from both parents weighed on average 6.6 pounds more. Note that the presence of the FTO gene was not associated with the risk of developing diabetes. In children, the gene primarily ramps up the appetite, so more calories get consumed. A study of school children was conducted where food was carefully weighed prior to and after a meal. The kids with FTO genes were likely to consume more calories at every meal. Turns out that the rate of metabolism is not the issue. Just the amount of food consumed, particularly high-calorie foods. The FTO gene is involved in regulating a hunger hormone called ghrelin, which instructs the body to eat more food. The higher the concentration of that hormone, the less likely the brain will receive a signal to stop eating. People with this genetic feature have had it since birth, and to control weight gain, they must pay close attention to the satiety cues and actually teach themselves when to stop eating. 
A healthy whole foods plant-based diet helps to maintain satiety or fullness by providing nutrient-dense foods as opposed to calorically dense processed foods like fast foods and junk foods. The plant-based foods also tend to be higher in fiber, which amplify satiety. From the article, quote, In a study by the Early Growth Genetics Consortium that looked at 20,000 individuals of European descent, babies under 2 with the gene don't show any significant difference in BMI, that's body mass index, from the rest of the population. But once a child is old enough to feed itself and not have the normal satiety cues, their BMI goes up. So that by six years of age, there is a difference in BMI compared to those who don't have the variant and the ones that do. The study showed that this can have an effect on their ability to maintain a healthy weight unless they learn to curb their appetite and listen to the subtle satiety cues. That's also good news for all of us since it shows that if teenagers with the genetic variant can learn to curb their appetite for high-calorie foods, we can too. End quote. Dr. Khan cites other triggers for ghrelin production, such as sleep deprivation. He says, quote, There's data about how we sleep less than 30 or 40 years ago. All those pressures have an effect on our diet and our health, and that's why genetics might be important. End quote. Additionally, the fat gene is associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease and metabolic syndrome, making it even more important to optimize a diet to reduce the intake of calorically dense foods. The last article is actually a scientific paper published in the March issue of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. The title is Associations of Unprocessed and Processed Meat Intake with Mortality and Cardiovascular Disease in 21 Countries. The study discussed in the paper is actually a subset of a huge overarching study called PURE, P-U-R-E, which stands for Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiology. Researchers recruited approximately 134,000 people living in 21 low, middle, and high-income countries from 2002 to 2010. It was designed to examine the effects of lifestyle on the health of varied populations. Researchers collected data on medical history, lifestyle behaviors like exercise and diet, blood analysis, and other medical tests. Also, data was collated on environment, food policy, socioeconomic factors, and tobacco use. The results of the study have been published in the highly respected Lancet medical journals. The PURE study was sponsored by the Canadian government and Canadian Federal Agencies for Health Research, plus many pharmaceutical companies like AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, and Novartis were involved. So getting back to the article in question, it addresses the health effects of eating unprocessed meat, for example, red meat and poultry, 
and processed meat, for example, bologna, hot dogs, sausages, bacon, on mortality or death rate and the development of major heart disease across the 21 countries. The people involved in the study were provided food frequency questionnaires to record their food intake. After following people for nine and a half years, the researchers recorded about 7,800 deaths and about 7,000 cardiovascular events. They found that people on average eating greater than 8.9 ounces of red meat or poultry per week were no more likely to die sooner or have heart attacks than those eating less than 1.8 ounces. However, note that most Americans likely consume way more than 8.9 ounces of red meat and poultry per week. Secondly, they found that people eating more than 5.4 ounces of processed meats were likely to have higher mortality, that is, die sooner, and have more heart attacks. To put that in perspective, note that an Oscar Mayer classic beef hot dog weighs one and a half ounces. So 5.4 ounces would equate to just three and a half hot dogs per week. So people's risk of dying sooner on that kind of diet would increase. Of course, this is not shocking news. Uh, for many years, health researchers have been warning consumers about the risks of eating processed meats. From what I can tell, these warnings have not had much effect. You certainly don't hear about processed meat plants closing across the United States, and I would be surprised if per capita processed meat consumption has gone down in the last 10 years. Hey, hey, wait a second. There has been a report on processed meat consumption over time in the United States. It was a study published in 2019 in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And in that article, it stated, quote, despite strong evidence linking processed meat with cancer risk, consumption of processed meat among U.S. adults didn't change over the study period, which was 1999 to 2016. While factors other than health, for example, social, cultural, and economic, can influence America's food choices, the lack of widespread awareness of health risks associated with processed meat may have contributed to the lack of consumption change in the past 18 years. Consumption remained unchanged at 82 grams per week, that's 2.9 ounces. The top five processed meats consumed are luncheon meat, sausage, hot dogs, ham, and bacon. There is accumulating evidence linking excessive consumption of processed meat to increased risk of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and some cancers. Processed meat has been classified as carcinogenic in humans by the International Agency for Research on Cancer." End quote. So, this is certainly not good news for backyard barbecuers. Hey, food eaters, so sad, but it's time to end the show. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have a little bit more time, I'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating 
at the iTunes Store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And, of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet by downloading a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play or a host of others. If you think your family, friends, coworkers, or acquaintances might be interested in this podcast, tweet or post a link through your social media outlets to get the word out. Hey listeners, I'd like to hear from you. If you have a particular processed food, food ingredient, or additive that you would like to learn more about, send me a message at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's all one phrase, foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. Then in a future episode, I'll address your questions. Till later, remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, Eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music is a clip from Concerto for Four Box Cello, composed by David Heilowitz. You should check out his YouTube channel. He not only composes and plays his own music, but he also constructs novel instruments.